0: So welcome back to Unstandardized English. I am your host, the Gerald. This is a podcast about white epistemology, what we can do about it, how we can beat it, how we can destroy it, and of course, racial linguistic ideologies, which are obviously tied to whiteness. Uh, today, we're going to talk about reopening schools, but not in the way that people are usually talking about it. We're going to talk about how talking about it has been led by, you know, a certain demographic, and how that really is not good for everybody. Um, I'm going to talk about it with a really a brilliant teacher here in New York, Selena Carrion, who is really on the ground and has a lot more direct K-12 experience than I do, but can really tell you how it really messes up the conversation when, um, let's just say, a certain demographic grabs a hold of the conversation about uh, kids in schools so i hope you enjoy i have a new patron it's actually the previous guest if you listen to the last episode i had dr elizabeth king she's now a patron so thank you elizabeth um, anybody who is interested in contributing to the patron uh to the patreon there's a link in the description um there's only a few episodes this season left i appreciate everyone who contributes Um, hopefully just like I did last year, um, I have some stuff coming out this summer that should make it so more people listen in the fall and the more patrons I get, the easier it'll be for me to do this show every couple of weeks. All right. Okay, folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. I am JPB Gerald. Charles. I am here today, here on my computer. I'm at home today talking to Selena Carrion, and uh, we're gonna talk about some, well, some stuff that's going on around New York and around the country. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, Selena, if you wanted to introduce yourself to people and tell them what you do and and some of the things that you've been working on.
1: Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. I am a New York City public school teacher. I've been teaching in the public schools for 10 years, and prior to that I was a student. Um, And I really just am passionate about, obviously, anti-racism and equity in schools, but also really thinking about how um, we can think about media, digital literacy um, as a vehicle for social change for students. Um, and right now I'm very interested in how um, learning, especially remote learning and in-person learning um, is being is being framed and how there seems to be a push for in-person learning and how there seems to be uh, efforts to privatize education and this has been a very interesting year for public education, so um, it's something that I'm definitely very passionate um, in speaking about. Yeah, there's
0: there's a lot there, um, and we'll we'll get into as much of it as we can in a reasonable amount of time. Um, yeah, the, you know, you, the, the article article I wrote last summer about the learning, the pandemic pods and all that, and and um, you know seeing every time there's an inflection point, the conversation, you know, people panic. And I understand panic in general, but then they're panicking, I feel like they panic about the wrong things, right? Like there's a legitimate thing to panic about right now. Uh, And then there's a a series of things that have been legitimate to panic about for a long time, but they never panic about those things. Um, They only panic when it seems like it might affect them. Yes. Uh, And one of the things that's made you know this idea of I mean you, you you can say what you're going to say so I'll, I'll let you get to, to it because you, you have a lot of thoughts about these things but one of the things that has always bothered me or really since i paying a lot of attention in terms of research and scholarship in the last couple of years is that like people the discourse starts to get led around by the oppressed students used to to you know lead a topic, but they're not the ones who end up actually benefiting from whatever it is, is being proposed. You know, all these people are like, well, what about the disabled kids? But well, what about the black kids? They never say black though, but, uh, but what, if, because they don't, you know, but, but what mm-hmm. about, what about the homeless kids? But what about, you know, and they, and they say this a lot and then, you know, we'll see in a couple of years, but uh I am skeptical that any of them are going to care whatsoever about these groups of kids a couple of years from now. I mean, they don't care now, but they're they're at least pretending to care, but they'll stop pretending after this is what I'm saying.
1: Absolutely. No, I more than agree with you. I think that unfortunately during moments of like moral panic and crisis, uh, certain, I, I think absolutely black students and other students in marginalized communities are used as as vehicles in education vehicles to push individual agendas and we latch on and we kind of create this performative like reform and this very paternalistic um stance where it's like but because we care so much these are the things that we have to do for these people but Obviously, it never censors them. It's always about how can I use a group that I've othered and I've marginalized and I've made a minority? How can I use them in order to push my agenda? But while, while seeming like I, I care, which we all know there's <laughs> in a few years, that'll be abandoned for whatever else is, is popular at the moment.
0: You know, I would respect all of it a lot more well well I don't know because there's two there's two avenues in the discussion that upset me um more than two but two main ones where like there was the discussion mostly from last summer when people realized that it wasn't gonna be over by the fall and they were like I'm gonna do these pods or whatever and um the conversation, of course, as you have been talking about is this expectation that they can't get any kind of learning from, from remote whatsoever. Um, and the reason that's a problem is not just because the kids theoretically aren't learning. I'm not saying that that's true. I'm saying that's what's being proposed. It's that they might not be learning as much as their competition. <laughs> it's not just that they're not because everybody's in the pandemic it's just uh there are schools that have found a way to be open whether or not they should be they are and this Mm -hmm. has been true all year um and some of those schools are of course schools that don't have to do anything to have small class sizes so they didn't have to i'm sure they had to do some planning but like they were able to you know have outside classes or they, you know, do do innovative things that allow them to be somewhat in person, which are not necessarily bad things to do. Um, And then these people say, I sent my kid to public school. I am therefore a good person. So, so why aren't they doing what I want? Now I'm going to fall behind. And I thought, that my belief in myself as a good person was going to carry me through as a public school parent for all these years. But now this thing happened and now it's not doing what I want. And now my kid is gonna fall behind compared to my neighbor's kid. And it's a thing. And then the other side of the conversation is the what we've talked about, about the using the most oppressed kids as, as, as a weapon to, to benefit. So I, when I, I was originally going to say, I respect it more when they're at least honest, that they just are worried about their own kids, and they're just like, I don't really care, right? But on the other hand, when they do that, they're not really honest because they say, oh, my kid is suffering so much or whatever. If they were truly honest, truly honest, and I've seen this sometimes online and there are people I don't know, they're like Facebook comments where they're like, look, some of these other kids are still in the school and my kid's gonna fall behind. And I'm like, you know what? I think that's gross, but uh, okay. <laughs> At least you're telling the truth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I agree. I think it's, it's much more insidious when it, that dishonesty and that performance is there because i rather you tell the truth that you're invested in having a certain power um, for you and your child and maintaining that power and control. And that's what you're more concerned with than putting on this whole performance um, about it's really about, you know, making it seem about something else. But I think what you were speaking to first really makes me think about how a lot of this is about maintaining power in the public school system and thinking about how well, I did you the favor of keeping my children and I, I had the choice. I didn't have to do this. And now for the first time I'm being confronted with almost like not having power and control in a situation where I've always had it without, without question. And I think there seems to be a lot of anger and resentment there, which is happening. I think in a lot of different levels um, in, in different institutions in the country, not just in education, um, and then you have an, another group of people who, absolutely, I think that they are very concerned with how their particular child measures up and whether or not this is going to affect the, the track that they had had hoped that they had their child on and how that traditional system was always benefiting them and they need that system to continue to work or their child they know is, is, not, is not necessarily gonna do as well otherwise. Um,
0: yeah. I had a professor a couple of years ago who told me, not incorrectly, the framing of what she said was wrong, but the fact wasn't wrong, that like SATs and other standardized tests statistically do tend to predict GPAs in like undergrad and stuff like that. Now, that is probably true because they kind of measure the same thing, right? Like the people who get the higher GPAs are often the people who are supported in school and that's the same people who are doing well on standardized tests and class and race and all that. Um, she was saying that as like, so therefore it's a good way to predict who's gonna do well. And it's like, I guess so, if all you want is a certain type of kid, which mm-hmm. the schools do, right? But on the other, so this is a very long way of saying, um, you know, most of those, they they took, SAT doesn't stand for anything anymore. It's just literally called SAT, right? Like it's it's literally, no, it's it's just not an acronym anymore. because It used to say Scholastic Aptitude Test. It was supposed to measure your ability. It never did. It was always an achievement test. It was how much have you been told um, Mm -hmm. and how can you put that into a certain pattern? And that, the thing is, if it was honest about what it was, it could have been theoretically useful if it wasn't used for everything, whatever. Like you can, like these things have, could have narrow uses. They're just used so broadly that it becomes like a big issue, you know? Um, And the parents who are worried about their kids not doing as well on exams and and getting into school and so forth, it's actually kind of an acknowledgement that, don't really believe in their kid's aptitude (laughs) the only thing that matters is what the student can be fed and regurgitate on various exams because if the kid really has and i'm not saying that this is a good or bad thing in terms of whether or not college or whatever should be based on aptitude but if the myth of meritocracy and so forth is supposed to say that the, the most deserving kids get in and the most deserving kid is supposed to be both hard work and talent or whatever, then they're admitting that the talent part isn't really true. <laughs> right. They, that, like they're saying that like, you know, that, um, my kid, because if, if the truth of the matter is, and I do believe this, uh, and I'm not telling my standard I assess that like, um, People who are good at those certain things are probably going to be good at those certain things one way or the other. They can be supported, but I don't think you're going to turn someone who, you know, because it, it's just it's, it's a it is itself a skill, is yes. my point. You know, um, and they're admitting that they need the things to be as they expect them to to believe in their childs whatever. I mean, it just sort of reminds me of the like college admission scandal thing, right? And it's just yeah. like what? Why did you? Just, that whole thing but anyway so you know it's just like I think about that and I think about how you're like they don't realize that they're admitting what the system is when they say this
1: Um, absolutely no I couldn't agree more and I think that's learning loss really operates within this realm of uh, the school is centered not the child so it's really this idea of without this traditional system, like essentially my child is nothing. (laughs) And without that system being there, my child has no knowledge of their own. They have no skills, they have no aptitude. And and I think that really says something about one, how the parents feel about their child, what they feel like what you said, what they really think about the system and how it's really rigged for them in their favor. And, and also, I think it's a reflection, a weird reflection on their parenting to basically say that I don't believe in my own parenting or other funds of knowledge, my own child's funds of knowledge, other ways of learning that my child wouldn't be successful without playing into this very traditional system and doing well on these very specific assessments. Um, It's it's a little yeah I don't and I don't think that they realize that 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 is what they're admitting I agree with you
0: yeah they they don't realize and it's it's because you you're right you talk about the, their parenting and like um it's this idea that you know we have to keep sending them to these places not just school but and tutors and all this stuff to get you know an improved score to, you know um or hire a counselor to, to massage their ability to get into schools and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's like, I don't, I just wonder if you, and this is not really a reflection on the kids, right? Cause most of the time these are kids. Um, and I just wonder if you are that kid and you have done all of this, even if you do get into the school some of them do like, you don't, <laughs> it's not all there in college, so a lot of people struggle when they get there. Um, and uh, it's not always there in adulthood. Yeah, even if your family has money, that such series of things is is not always there for you. You're, you're, I don't think you're setting your kid up for success unless you truly believe. And this is 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 that they're going to have an easy road in life anyway, and therefore you don't really need to set them up for success. However, you find success, but I just mean being able to like do things autonomously. Um, or collectively, but to really do things of their own accord without being propped up. And uh, it's the same way that I say, like, surrounding people, you know, when I talk about race and whiteness and stuff like that, it's like surrounding people with whiteness is not actually good for white kids either, <laughs> right? You know, like, it's, 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 it's not actually, you know, just creating this competition that people always have to be at the top of. And by being at the top, people have to be below you. It means you're always looking out for people to push down. And to, to create more kids like that is not, it's not going to help that kid to try to get them to be one inch above the, the other people.
1: No, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think it also, talking about autonomy, I think that whiteness it tries to triumph this idea of meritocracy and working hard and pulling yourself off up by your bootstraps. And the most deserving person is obviously the <clears throat> going to benefit, but really it's behind that is really a lack of autonomy and a lack of um any actual personal accountability and it's just how do we pass on privilege whether it's it's wealth or some sort of cultural capital or some sort of social connection um in order to continue to hold on to power so you have all of these you know children becoming adults who really are being supported by this larger this larger network never really having to do anything for themselves but but the image is that they they have always done everything on their own they've worked the hardest for it and that's why they're in those positions of power I think
0: I wonder like who I I mean I hate I hate to use evaluative words on this but I don't know how else to do it but like uh you know when I think about sometimes the way that even all the way up to like doctoral programs like 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 you know I'm a a doctoral Mm -hmm. student and you know this is supposedly the highest level of education right it's the highest right I'm in 21st grade you know (laughs) and uh you know I've been in school you know, since like 1988, right? Or something like that. I mean, I, I, there were some years there, but still. <laughs> um, and yeah, there was there was gaps, but the point is, you know, like I started being in school, you know, uh, when I was two. And like, even in this program, a lot, and it's not just my program, it's a lot of programs. I've talked to people in other programs and it's not too different, is that there's still so much of system learning like how how to do the system right that i i you know it's the, i understand that there is a hidden curriculum and that you do have to learn these things so that you understand the lingo and you understand the practices but like you you can't build anything transcendent that way right you can't get out of you, you can't just like, you know, f- follow these checklists and then, you know, A and then B and then C and then, and then it'll be amazing. It's like, that's not how it works. And uh, I don't think, so that's also why we're not setting people up. That's why it also benefits to people who have the cultural capital who have, you know, relative power, because if everybody goes and follows the system then the people who have more power are still going to have more power.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, and then you say, well, what are you going to do? have a program teach you how to mess with the system? It's like, I understand why programs can't do that because they're part of this system. Exactly. But on the other hand, anybody who's doing anything really transcendent is messing with the system in some way because the system doesn't want anything unique to happen. It's, that's, what, that's what the system is built for is to to push that away. Um,
1: yeah, I don't know. No, and I think, that's, I, I think it's a paradox of formal education and it's you think education at its essence is about, it's, it's about innovation and evolving ideas and creating something novel and pushing boundaries and thinking outside of boxes, but the more formalized it becomes, and I think this happens a lot in higher education and academia, the more you find yourself in boxes. And I think for people of color, especially, and I think... And I was having this conversation with somebody earlier who has completed their doctoral program and how this culture of respectability politics as well kind of continues to put you into these smaller and smaller boxes. And before you know it, you're so afraid of innovating anything new or novel or disrupting anything, which was... originally the purpose of, of pursuing higher education, you would think of, you know, so it really is, and <clears throat> it's very paradoxal to me. And I think it's really hurtful as a whole for society that we continue to basically perpetuate the same ideas.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about like disrupting and stuff, because the word disrupt has become this, it's like a tech buzzword for yeah. different white people doing capitalistic things. Um and you're not really changing anything. Just oh, you invented taxis, but you're paying people less. Great job. Um you know, it's like because all disrupt means is you're winning the competition by cutting out something that was taking care of people. Um, it's like, hey, I invented, you know, hiring personal shoppers, but I'm not going to give them insurance. Like it's like, oh, that's your disruption. It's like you're disrupting their ability to have health care. Um yeah and but that's what disrupt me like it's the same thing though. like it's still like one group of people taking advantage of another group of people uh if you genuinely want to disrupt something as in like unsettle people mm-hmm. right um because all those things people in general are very comfortable with them. the other companies that have less market share or whatever are less comfortable but the system is not uncomfortable with an uber or uh whatever it's they're they're very comfortable. And they love it to the point where these companies like don't ever make a profit, which I don't understand how these things work. No examples, <laughs> <baffles> me too. <laughs> you know, like I I still I still watch Shark Tank sometimes. I just find it interesting, and they're just like, yeah. So you know, we're about ten million in debt. We're gonna. I'm just like, huh. but um, but like but the, the the system is comfortable with this nonsense, right? Whereas you're just like, wait a second, why are journals not available to the public and they're like um because that like that's that's the general thing is like is is disruptive and but it's like what I don't understand is there are still like my professors and some of them probably listen to this I don't care but like you know they still will tell me that this journal that journal is the gold standard because it's the best research and so forth and um fine but like nobody can read it yeah so you're still telling me to, to here's what it's like to get into that journal here's you know or I've been told like read the articles in this journal and see what they're like and then if you want to apply for it you should write an article like that I'm just like I'm going to write how I'm going to write man like like if they like it they like it if they don't like it they don't like it it's just going to be the way that I do things I I understand they're going to edit it but like when I submit something it's going to be how it is um and so for all of their and a lot of them do have really like you know, boundary pushing ideas when I talk to them individually, still when they're training us, they're still like, but anyway, go be like them. Uh, And, you know, all I know is you should never be able to read something someone writes. Once you've read a couple of the things, obviously you don't, if I've never, I don't know who the person is, I don't know if their style is, but you know what I'm saying. You should never be able to read several things that a person writes and not see a a discernible style. Um, And I know writing isn't the only thing, but I think it's one of the more important things um, in terms of, you know, innovation and, and creativity and stuff. And I don't just mean creative writing, but the like creativity in writing. Um, and I think especially that's one of the ways that that people are, are pushed back because you know things will be, be be celebrated and like it's just it's just terribly written and it's convoluted and doesn't make any sense um not that i'm the judge of all writing but you know what i'm saying I'm just this as an example i'm a language teacher originally right so um yeah and i think it's a it's a big part of the issue because um you know we we Even the things that are supposed to be trying to tell us to do things differently are telling us to do things the same way. And this may seem to have nothing to do with learning loss, but then when you think about it, all of those things are within the standardized box.
1: Absolutely. Like
0: learning loss, no one, none of these parents are talking about my child is losing his ability or their ability to write, uh, you know, to to write, uh, you know, nonfiction historical essays. I don't know what kids write, but <laughs> like, you know, no no one is saying that. They're just saying what they mean is he's not he might they might not get as good of a score on the tests next time. Exactly. That's all they you can dress it up however you want, but what they mean is they might not get as good of a score on the test next time or five years from now because they're thinking that far ahead. Um like All these tests and even even IQ tests, which is supposed to be more intuitive and not like filling in bubbles, like they give kids that test when they're like two to put them in gifted programs. What happened to me when I was three? What? I was three. I
1: know. No, IQ tests, I think are so like, are just harmful and so problematic and have very just I think ra- racist applications oh, even yeah. today, when we think about the gifted and talented program in, in New York City, for instance, it's very, uh, when you think about measuring intelligence, you have to measure that through a certain lens. Like there is no, and I, and, and I think that's the issue of learning loss as well. It's almost like there is an ideal definition for learning. There's an ideal definition for what has to be learned at a certain age. And this is the way it has to be learned. And this is the standard, and. And this is our definition of intelligence and I think that in and of itself is inherently it's it's very problematic because it really centers up it centers whatever group is maintaining the status quo at that point.
0: I, it reminds me of because one of the things I'm trying to do is really push against in how language teaching is. I like the book I'm writing, all oh, that's about pushing the, 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 the ideas behind language teaching. Not as much the pedagogy, but the pedagogy is involved because it's like, okay, so then what, right? Um, like the article I have coming out, which will be coming out right at around the time this episode comes out, um, is about, you know, there's some pedagogy stuff in there. Like, how would I, I do language teaching differently if we actually did? Decenter whiteness as I was talking about my article last year, Um, but uh, one of the things that I I, I, I and and the co-authors talk about is like, you know, we want to make it so, because so much of language teaching is about you're broken, your language is broken, and we need to fix you, which is true with a lot of different types of teaching, but especially with language, and um, the listener never has to adapt, you know, I, you know I, I'm recording a presentation sometime in May about how like there are advanced students who I had for years. They're in my class for years. There's nothing wrong with their English. Just, you know, if you, pausing and saying for a second whether or not there can be something wrong with somebody's English, but even by any standard, there's nothing wrong with their English, right? I understood everything they said to me. Yeah, was there occasionally like a, you know, a dropped S in the third person singular? Sure. Like, I understood everything they said. They understood everything I said, except for when they didn't know the vocabulary and then they looked it up. What was the problem is that they kept saying to me, oh, my English is bad. I'm like, if your English was bad, which again, we can talk about whether it's possible, but if your English was bad, you wouldn't be able to tell me that. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know I would not be able to understand you're telling me that you were struggling with your English right there are people where I'm just like okay we really need to try to figure out how to understand each other right we can't make meaning together then we need to figure something out this was not a situation like that what it meant was whenever they weren't in class with me people didn't want to be patient enough to take the time to listen to them mm-hmm. and I could pump them up all I wanted and give them more confidence and I tried to, but the fact of the matter is walking down the street, people just didn't want to hear them and listen to them. Even though they said all of the same words and most of the time people learn English as a second language or something or third language, by the time they learn it very formally. So they use words better, you know, more accurately than we do. Um, and. So it's really more about changing the way the listener understands English. And it also reminds me similarly, because you talk about learning loss and so forth to this idea of students needing to be college and career ready. It's like, maybe the college should be student ready. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe the job should be employee ready. Yes. <laughs> you know, is, your, is, your, is your job employee ready? That's the question I want to, to have answered. You know? Is your college student ready? The answer is no. I know it's not because you have all these remedial classes and they say, well, it's just that these kids, they're not ready. It's like, okay, maybe. I understand for certain classes, there should be prerequisites just because there's some stuff you need to know before you get into a certain class. But like there's, I mean, I, like we can debate remedial stuff all to, you know, that's a whole thing, but like uh, how do we get away from certain students being designated not appropriate students for higher education, right? You, yeah. you know, where where is that that line, you know? And um, people listening to this might say, well, what do you do? I mean, failed, they failed tests tests, you know, so, so they, they, how can they graduate if must they, you know, how can we have people finish school if we don't have numbers on it? It's like, yeah, it would be messy. It would be
1: messy. It would be messy, I know, and that's, and that's okay. <laughs>
0: but it's messy now
1: it's just messy <laughs> in a harmful way exactly <laughs> it's messy in a way that you are not directly involved in the mess so you're okay with that type of mess right the type of mess that might benefit somebody else um, and make you uncomfortable uh, it's it's really no i completely agree and i see that as a literacy teacher for elementary school students and i teach i have an enl class as well or you know English language learners or which I can go on and on about everything that I think is problematic with that. But I, but you touched on a lot of it. And I think that it the students are never centered. The school and the institution and the system is always centered. And when I have a student who I know can express to me the theme of a novel, but maybe won't be able to write a five paragraph essay about it. And the assessment says they have to write that five paragraph essay in order to meet a standard. Is it really, so at that point, do I fail the child because they can't do it in the way that the standard is mandating they do it? Or do I look for other ways for that child to be able to express this idea to me? And I think that's what schools, refuse to do we rather instead of thinking about okay well what does this child know and they can express theme maybe they could express it in a different language maybe they can express it as a video recording but not you know verbally but not written maybe they could express it visually but that's messy and we don't want to do that so instead we say this is the box You might have that knowledge in so many other ways that are outside of the box that are just as valuable, but this is the small thing that we value. And now you don't fit there. So you are completely shut out of of the system. And, and at that point, it's like, how is that put on, you know, we're, we're calling that holding a child accountable, but what are they being held accountable for, for the system's lack of responsiveness to them? Because again, like they're not meeting their needs and said the child has to meet the needs of the system.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes about my experience when I first came back to New York and I was doing various um, adult ed jobs before I had a more stable job at a nonprofit. And, you know, I was working at some of those like for-profit schools um, and, you know, just needed a job. And I look back on those times and some of the students I had, and I'm just like, you know, over time, i came like, just like, this school is lying to you. Um, the school is not, the certificate from the school doesn't matter because they're, it's not like you are still going to be seen a certain way. I'm not, I didn't say this, but I just realized, I realized over the time that I worked there, like you're still going to be seen as deficient because people outside of this neighborhood, because this is in Flushing, um, are going to perceive you with an accent and so forth. And they're just not going to think that you can speak English enough, right? There were some people who really like, you know, we, we had to work together on, on understanding each other, right? But most of them, that wasn't the case. And if they were just going to get a job in Flushing, they didn't need to go to class. <laughs> so so the school was just lying to them. Um, but uh, I also think about, speaking at ENL, EOL, like I work, you know, I work, I'm one of the, an officer for New York state TESOL. And uh, we put out a survey in February to all of the members. And uh, it was about a couple of things like how's remote learning going and the responses on that were pretty same, you know, it's a struggle. Some people say, well, I'm actually in the building right now, whatever. Um, and then one of the questions is, um, which would be happening around the time this episode comes out, is about the nicest lat, right? The, like, mm-hmm. state t- test, right? And so we were asking people, we don't have power to do anything over it, but we wanted to see, basically, like, do you think it should happen? If you think it should happen, do you think it should happen for everybody or only the people who've been in person, right? Now, you know, there were some people, it was about split, some people, half, about half people just said no, and then half of them said yes, but among the people who said yes, more people said yes for everyone versus yes for just the people who were in person. But what I thought was interesting about that was among the yes people, they got to put in a qualitative answer also, and the answers were things like, so "There's some people who were just really big on the test, which I knew, fine, not fine, but like I'm not surprised. But then there were people who were trying to add, they th- in their head." advocating for their students right they're like we didn't have it last year there's students who you know they're not going to be lab- allowed to to move on out of the this whatever label if they don't take the test um I don't but like I, but if they had they're not going to pass it anyway um <laughs> and and whatever so so what I'm saying is that these are teachers who in their heads and not entirely incorrectly are trying to to advocate for their students, not in, you know, a disingenuous way. They're 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 just, but they can't think outside of the test. Yes. My, yes. That's my point. Is that yes. even the people who are trying to help their students are thinking, how can I help them do well on this test? And only think in terms of
1: that. That's what that baffles me and it like enrages me at some points because I really think that teachers are so within the confines of what they think is of what they think is real and possible. And it's really only what they have experienced or what the institution has told them is real and possible. So they advocate for their students, but they advocate for them only to succeed within a system which they think is actually unfair to their students. And instead of thinking, wait a minute, if the system's unfair to my student, why am I advocating for my student to continue to try to succeed within the system? Why don't I think about how to dismantle these practices and these policies so that my student can be successful outside of this? And I feel like a lot of educators don't, they don't think beyond to, to that extent. Well, because it's the, that's how they were
0: raised. Yeah. Not just how they were trained, which is its own issue, but yeah. also like they, they took the tests, not that test, but they took the tests to get where they are. And, and, um, and so they can't, see the, they can't see a vision. This is why the current article that we we wrote is about like, okay, let's imagine we can actually envision this stuff, but what would we do, right? Because um, even in being critical in the previous article, I didn't say what it would look like. I saw how to, I said how to change it, but I didn't say, okay, what would happen if we did these things? Um, and I think another one of the problems is like, cause I saw this, so I, another like exam, do you know the best plus exam? The best plus.
1: Yeah. No,
0: I'm not familiar with that. Okay, so it's a, you know, English exam. It's an oh. oral exam. Um, and I don't know how often it's used for kids. It is very popular among like community programs where they get grants because it's, it's something that is approved by like city agencies that give grants. Okay. So like I, when I work for a nonprofit, we had to, every student who came in, we had to assess them orally on the best plus tests and then put them in the class accordingly. In, in theory, there's nothing wrong with this, right? And ultimately over time, I stopped paying attention to the rules and I just, I was like, no, you're in that class because I didn't, like, I didn't like the test. I, I really would just sit there. I did have to get it, like them to fill out a form because I needed their information um, but so i have been like, fill out this form. And then I like talked to him for a second. I was like, Hmm, three, uh, you know, because t- <laughs> I, I, it's not that hard. I know it's not, I mean, after you, after you teach hundreds of people, you know, right. In terms of, um, anyway, but like, because in order to give the best plus exam, you have to be best plus certified because it's a racket. So I got best plus certified back in 2010, 2010 um, because I was working for a summer program where you had, we had to do that when the students came in. And so they paid for us to get certified, and then the certification just lasts, although it's probably lapsed by now. Um, and uh, like, there are very, this is a very long way of explaining, there's a very specific set of ways you're supposed to grade them, right? You're supposed to grade them on the complexity of what they're saying, mm-hmm. um, if how well they understood you. And how well you understood them. So the problem with that is it's kind of hard for them to, like, if they don't understand what you're saying, it's kind of a zero, right? If they don't understand what you're saying, they don't understand what, they're not, you know. um, And then the complexity of what they're saying, we were specifically told that if the question is a yes or no question and they answer yes or no, you can't give them the highest rating on complexity because they only answer with a yes or no. I'm like, but it's a yes or no question. So you just want them to babble for no reason, right? And and so five start star. so my first response was to tell them that I'm like, look, I'm gonna t- I have to grade you on these things, I have to grade you on how well I understand you and, and the complexity. So when I ask you a question, just talk. Uh, <laughs> and so they would do that. And then I got fed up with that because it was a waste of time. So I was just like, okay, I get it. Um, anyway, uh, so. Yeah, and then, but like I had a really progressive employee who still really believed in the validity of the test because it is because it is valid in the sense of like it fits statistical measures and so forth, right? And this is the same thing that kept happening is that people, I, I hadn't articulated it very well because I hadn't done the research I'd done. It was all a feeling and nobody's gonna listen to a feeling. But like, I just like, there's something wrong with this. (laughs) There's something wrong here, but you have to go, like, it's a shame that I have to go, I mean, I'm enjoying my doctoral studies, but I have to go get this degree so people will listen to me. Uh, And, you know, before I can point out that I I understand that it fits within validity and reliability and so forth, but does it fit within relevance? (laughs) Like, does it matter? You know, um, it's statistically significant, but does it matter? And I at least appreciate my statistics professor. We had that conversation. Like we, we weren't challenging him. He said the same thing. He's like, yeah, sometimes you'll get something to be statistically significant, but like in the real world, it just doesn't matter. Um,
1: and I think that that happens to be the case with most of our with just I think our approach to assessment in general. Is there an actual relevance to it? And half of the times, so I don't even think there's, for some assessments, there's not even real, I would say statistical merit behind it or significance, or there definitely are concerns about how valid um, the measure is. But I think that in terms of relevance, that's that's never a question. And, it, and that should be the first question. How relevant is this assessment going to be? Um, for this student, and <clears throat> what it is that they, you know, whatever their next step is in in this educational journey, and that never gets asked.
0: I think because I think about like you know the various indicators that apparently my school had that I was supposed to be gifted when I was a child, right? And a lot of it was that I do things very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like my brain moves quickly. That's not necessarily a skill. It's just a fact. It moves quickly from place to place to place. But when you are a child, you know, you know, it just seems like I'm like a steam engine. You just move. It's <laughs> like, wow, look how impressive. I had no control over this. <laughs> it's just what was happening. And it's just like, uh, you know, there are certain things that are, are respected and certain things that are not. Um, and you know, when you, when you finish taking the test and then the number comes out, like that, that, that's, that represents however much time you've spent on that, you know, to the people who are paying attention, you know, it's not like, you know, I, I really put a lot of work into this and I'm proud of the, 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 the result. And, but it really, what matters is what the number is. Because, you know, when I actually started to do, I didn't, you know, I started to do a lot better academically like obviously I did well in high school but like I uh you know I was just off on my own planet I obviously got into good school and all that but then like in college when I started doing well my second two years when I did well on something I didn't usually this is back when people things when everything was printed right um and like I would hand the thing in I usually didn't go pick it up I was like I did well on that (laughs) hey but like it's true because eventually I would look at my grades and it's like yeah like when I knew I did well on something like when I truly do I didn't go back and look. I just knew that, like, it I, I connected because this goes to an idea that's related to something we were saying. It's like, to me, you know, how are we going to assess these people, right? To me, you know, how are we going to get them to pass the test so we don't focus on the test? Yeah, okay, we should get rid of the test, but I understand as most, most teachers, you don't have the power to get rid of the test. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but I understand right now. However, to me, a happy and a healthy student is going to do better on the test. And I think it really should be our job to make our students as happy and healthy as we can while we're with them. Obviously we can't do that much about their lives, but you know what I'm saying? Um, and I think that I don't think that that's, that, that enough teachers um, or parents think, <laughs> think that that is the case.
1: No, it's not. And I think confidence, I, like what you were speaking um, <clears throat> towards really reminded me about, I think the relationship between confidence and transparency and i think when a child really owns their learning or even an adult when you know what it is that you're being assessed on when you understand what skills you already have and what it is that you would like to work on um, what your goals are then you're able to take an assessment and say okay i this is what this assessment is assessing me on I know that I might not be here yet, but I know I am able to do this. And I and I think at that point, a student is able to leave knowing whether or not they did well in an honest way. And I think a lot of that plays into transparency. And we don't have transparency around assessments. We give assessments to students. They don't know what they're being assessed on. We don't ever talk about it, or at least... You know that's a traditional model. I think of 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 instruction and assessment. We're just kind of expecting students to retain information, regurgitate it, but we're never talking about why they're retaining this information. Why is this information important? Why are they regurgitating it? How are they going to? And. and because students learn in that environment, you could never really build any confidence in that environment because everything is cloaked and hidden. There's absolutely no sense of <clears throat> transparency or power or control from the student's point of view. So I think that really hurts confidence and it, and you can't do well unless you have that sense of confidence and that sense of control, you know, if, if, if that makes sense.
0: If you're just feeling anxious the whole time. yeah you're, you know, you might luck into doing well, but like, you're not going to do well because of how you feel, you know? Um, And if you're anxious and you do well, sometimes, and I think this happens, is that like, I have friends who in college will be like, man, I can't do well unless I do things at the last minute and the pressure is on. It's like, okay, maybe, but maybe you would have done better (laughs) <laughs> if you, you know, and these are college students is different, but it's still just sort of, and they're doing it to themselves. But like, uh, you know, you could look at a student and you cracked the whip on, right? And they they barely passed the test and you're like, they did it because I cracked the whip. It's like, or... maybe we should think differently about about the way you know these no excuses and and you know all that stuff it's just like i think that yeah so it goes all the way back to the initial discussion we're having about the schools reopening and then learning loss and all this stuff where so much of the energy is on this this fear that you know forget about the just the tests themselves, which are right under the surface of what they mean by learning loss and you know, people falling behind, I think the real fear is that education might look
1: different. Yeah, absolutely. And that some things might become obsolete. And as they should, because that's how <laughs> everything should evolve at some point. And I think that is the real fear that it might look different and it might look different in a way that doesn't serve people that it's, that it's always served. And, and, and not only that, but I think in general, people fear any sense of looming change and any sense of newness. Um, So I think it's, it's a lot of that is just a reaction to, to that potential change and and shift um, into the future. But that has to happen.
0: I don't think that people, I mean, it's, it's like, I understand being uncomfortable with uncertainty. I'm uncomfortable with uncertainty. Uh, we're all uncomfortable with uncertainty to some you know, respect, but, uh, you have, you have to be Comfortable is the wrong word, but you have to be uh, able to be uncomfortable in that way and continue on, right? It's like uh, people, you know, what what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Um, not to mention the fact that forcing schools to reopen and then reclose and reopen and reclose like that, I don't understand how that's supposed to be helpful. Like, why don't you just just wait? The year's almost over. Just wait. I don't get it. Um, <laughs> like, like what? What's going to happen in the next two
1: months that, anyway. um, (laughs) It's so disruptive. It's so disruptive. It's so counter to this like faux concern over students learning.
0: Yeah. I have gotten rid of most of the problematic Facebook friends I have because I'm just (laughs) tired of them, but I still have a couple. They're not as problematic, so I left them there, but they're still parroting this stuff and they're like, you know. My, my, my kid is just, just miserable at home, she's just miserable. I'm just like, I'm sure, it's not fun. I think most of us were miserable at home. <laughs> like, like I'm sure, it's terrible. Yeah, but that, like, that's not, it's not that they're not struggling, it's that they're not struggling relative to other people. Like it, this is hard for a lot of people it makes sense that it would be challenging and it's new and it's different and, and so forth. And they want to see their friends and it's like, okay, so go find a park and put your mask on. But I mean, like there's ways to do these things. <laughs> like, you know, No,
1: it's absolutely. And I think what troubles me about that argument, it's like one, why all the concern over social and emotional health now, just like right. the same for academic learning. Yeah our schools have been lacking in social emotional learning especially through like an equity or anti-racist lens forever they've never they, they've always lacked it we've haven't even put in resources into just general mental health care in schools so now all of a sudden we have a pandemic and parents you know and others are just concerned about this and we don't even have any real plans on the horizon like politically on a federal level and not on a municipal level in New York City to to even address that so there's like we have to get them back because of you know their social health they feel isolated but then we don't have any plans to actually address that once they're back in the building we think that the school itself is going to be the cure for that and the school is not the cure for someone's mental well-being it shouldn't be and it, a lot of the time, it's the cause. It's the cause, <laughs> exactly. And that's my other issue. For yeah. many people, it's the cause of mental and emotional distress, not the cure for it.
0: Right. And I do feel for, like, these are kids, most of the people who are talking, so, or that we're talking about, right? So I understand I don't want these kids to suffer any more than they need to, but it's like, there's like not even getting into the fact that they could obviously suffer from getting COVID, but there's like, that's a whole other thing, right? You know, like, I'm just like, what do, why are you not worried about that? Anyway, um, and then there's the fact that like sending them into a school building where there's gonna be a whole bunch of rules about this, where they can stand. And, and then this, this, like, it's just like, are they really having fun? Like, are they, I mean, maybe some, maybe, but like, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't know, I see enough teenagers walking around outside, like, I feel like they'll find a way to see each other if they need to. They just might not be in the school. Um, I mean, I understand for very small kids, it's a whole different situation. But like, again, the conversations I'm seeing are mostly from parents of slightly older kids. It's not, you know, like, there, there are kids who are really struggling who are much younger and there is evidence that, you know, I can see how one could bring small groups of small children together. A lot of the daycares are open and so forth. But that's, that's, if it was just that, it would be a different conversation. Because if they just said, you know, we should wait for the kids who are older until this is all really settled down and everybody gets vaccinated, but we do need to get just the small kids into schools, like one could agree to disagree with that. But that's a different conversation than the one that we're having.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. And that's the issue it's that we're not having those conversations and and i can understand those other perspectives if we were willing to bring in those other conversations and those other narratives but we're not we're completely ignoring them as if it's a separate issue and it's not a separate issue it's very well tied into what the conversations that a lot of these parents are having and it's not even they they want to call it reopen schools what they mean is force people back into school
0: buildings because the yeah. schools are open Yes. There, right. I mean, not even just that the schools are like the buildings are open for most people now, but I just mean like in the sense that like the schools never close. The buildings were closed and the people weren't physically in the buildings. Uh, so and then there's this whole like, oh, it's a lost year. It's like, do, here's the thing about this. Right. We spent all this time as kids. Talking about how history was never seen relevant to us because it was taught poorly and it was taught in this detached, you know, whitewashed way. There has been so much history in the last 15 months, well, 13, whatever. Um, that i am certain these kids are paying attention to there's so much to talk about and of course you can talk about it poorly but that doesn't mean it's not going to come up in the conversations like i would think because some of the one of the things that's happened in my classes is that it's impossible for us i mean i know i'm a doctoral student but it's been impossible for us not to talk about what's happening each time you know we don't just spend the whole class on it but like it ties into what we're doing um and if you you know, not you, but if one cannot figure out a way to make things relevant now, then what are you doing?
1: Absolutely. And I think for me as a remote teacher and also someone who does incorporate what is happening into the curriculum on a day-to-day basis, they are learning a lot (laughs) about health disparities, about (laughs) political unrest, and they're learning about our government, our economic system. They're, they're learning tons of things. And I think on top of that, they're also learning like digital literacy and skills that they're actually probably going to need to navigate the 21st century successfully, which schools were, I think, ignoring for the longest time, at least schools in New York City that serve majority Black and Latino children who were not interested in teaching students like basic digital literacy skills, how to navigate media, how to use digital tools, which is is a huge disservice. Like if I don't understand what schools are waiting for for them to learn that as they were about to go to college and then have to do everything, um, <clears throat> you know, it, using digital learning. It really, I think this has, has pushed students to learn a lot of the skills that they actually hopefully do need to know that schools otherwise wouldn't have taught in this year.
0: Well, see, there's a the thing though. Everybody, and I, I obviously there's disparities in there's people who haven't been able to connect, but that's, that's yeah. an issue, but that's not really what I'm talking about with this point that I'm making now, um, is that you could be super wealthy or you could be not that wealthy. If you have been on the computer, you've been in the same facility. Yes. that the other people are in, right? I don't care how nice your school is. It doesn't have a better version of Zoom. Maybe it can put more people in the room, but it's the same thing, right? So in that sense, there's less of an advantage to some people now. Like obviously having a better connection is the whole thing, but that's not what I mean. I mean, once the people are on, like a lot of the advantage is not there in terms of, you know, so they, you know, they're not in their fancy buildings, right? You know, and um, a lot of that. They still have a lot of advantages in life, but there's not as much separation between their school experience and, and some of the other kids. And I think that's also what some of the parents are upset about because they, they can't be like, I sent my kid to public school and it's the nicest public school. It's like, everyone's in Zoom school. So, or at least it were a few months ago. So it's, now it's the same, it's the same public school. Um, and they don't like that. They don't want to send their kid to any public school they move to where they could send their kid to a particular public school. Absolutely. And now they're all at the same school and they don't like it. Uh, you know, how
1: they don't want to share the back of the bus with them, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and how dare their tax dollars go to waste right now to pay. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that has a lot to do with it because it just yeah, I, it really has leveled the playing field in a way that it wasn't leveled before. And, and I'm not saying that across the board, there are students who are outliers. But I do think that, like you said, everybody kind of now is is within the Zoom school. And a lot of those other advantages or privileges have kind of been erased.
0: And um, I, I think, you know, there's no like, they don't have to commute, right? Oh, you know, this kid, he has a real long commute. No, he doesn't uh you know and it's just like he he has to take three buses no he doesn't you know um and like that's yeah th- that, he's not,
1: falling. He's not yeah. falling asleep and in the middle classes, is he's now well rested you know she can eat when she wants to eat and she's not <laughs> hungry and unfocused in the middle of the day they're definitely that's and they
0: have to, about. and they, and and I think there's a lot of teachers who are like, I can't control them the way I want to. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and parents, but like, uh, you know, why I can't reach through there and reprimand them. It's just like, I'm going to turn the camera on. Um, That's <laughs> and, the thing
1: with the camera. Yeah. It's become such a control issue. Absolutely.
0: Right. Like I can see if, if like you can debate whether it makes sense if someone's literally giving like a presentation they, wish they should turn it on or something, but that's like a whole, that, but I said, that's nuance, yes. right? We don't want to have nuance. Like, you know, should should we, you know, would it be more helpful for very small children to have daycare and then as they old get older and so like Like that's nuance, right? That's not, you know, I can have that discussion. You know what I'm saying? And that's a different discussion than like just, Put them in the building, just everybody go in the building. Um, and then if you oppose that, then they act like you don't care about the most vulnerable kids. I'm like, no, I don't care about your kid. But that's not my point. <laughs> 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 like Your, your kid will be fine. Like, all I know is I had one person who was one of the people who was like, my, my stepson, he's just so sad at home. And I don't not believe her, but you went to like Joshua Tree for three weeks in August. Like yeah. you just rented a house in California in August. You didn't have to do that. You could have taken that money and just, you could just bought him a toy or something. I don't know. Like you just make his home Zoom school better. You know, give him give, give him something. I don't know what you have to, but you didn't have to like, all I'm saying is like you could have done something but the school is supposed to be raising him and it's not. So now you don't know what to do. Uh, and this is, again, not to say that there aren't services in schools that can be, because, you know, there's research on how schools can be really, you know, communal places for some kids, kids of color, like some of them can be, depends, Mm -hmm. you know, so I don't want to pretend that there isn't a benefit to school. Uh, it's just that we are having this black, white conversation. Um, and if you push back on their fury, then they, they, they don't want to listen at all, you know, and, uh, it's it's just sort of like yeah I, I don't know I find it it's it's troubling but it's just not surprising it's it's it'll be it whatever it is it, the next thing will be next year it'll be something else because Absolutely. they'll find a new way to to you know have a panic and like all the people who they, they say left the city last summer it's like nobody who was planning to stay here long term left the city yeah. It was the people who were planning to leave in like two, three years. They were like, okay, I'm gonna go now. Yeah. Um, it's like fine, go. <laughs> I know, we don't need you
1: i know we didn't want you yeah you
0: could just leave we don't need you because they're the people who were complaining about the city all the time exactly There's no money homeless people here it's like you and now, go, leave
1: and now the mortgage rates fell and they left and thank you we won't yes. miss you yeah just go ahead it's like i see
0: i see you i see the people who i knew one of the people who i deleted who were just like just, just they just like bought a million dollar farm and i'm like all right okay, you can just, you can just go. Um, and people's like, there's just so many homes people on the train. I'm just like, you mean you could see them now? <laughs> exactly. and, and you, you're just forced to pay attention to them because there's not many people on the train overall. Um, and you don't, you don't know how you, you couldn't you can't ignore them the way that you would prefer to is what yes. you mean? of course there's obviously more than you know but I, you know what i'm saying my wife works in the housing so i understand this situation it's very complex but that's what they mean they're just like i have to look at this um people act like it's 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 um like these problems weren't there it's the same with this social emotional learning like all these Absolutely. things like these problems aren't new
1: Well, that's what the pandemic has done. Yeah. It's like, oh, now we have to look. Oh, that makes me very uncomfortable. No, no, no. (laughs) Let's go back. Let's go
0: back to the way it was. Right. That's exactly. That's what they want to. They want to reopen. When they say reopen schools, they mean they want to close their eyes. I think that's what they mean by reopen schools. They want to close their eyes uh, because they can't right now. Like it's too hard because like everyone else, they're on the internet. Right? And it's just going to come across them. (laughs) Like they're going to see it. They can't not see it. Um, Like you can only block so many things from the Twitter feed. You're like, I don't want to see that name. Like I blocked like, you know, certain political people. Like I don't want to see, like I I blocked Trump like a year ago. Because I'm like, I don't (laughs) want to see this nonsense. Right? You still find out what he's doing though. (laughs) I mean, not so much now because he's not on there. But I mean, like, you know, like you, you still end up finding things out. and. When you block something and it still shows up that means it's usually somewhat important yeah so when the the point is they can't filter out all of the issues in 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 the world now because they're on the internet like everybody else and uh i think for some people it's also why some people really want to go back to the office um Mm -hmm. normal you know normal style whatever i'm just like i don't want to go back there and be there half the time with half the people, and like I don't really want to go back. Period. But like, if I'm there, like I don't want to. There's gonna be rules, and there's gonna be this, and I gotta sit there with like a mask and a face shield, and like mm-hmm. sit in designated areas. And I'm just like, who wants to do that?
1: Maybe. I know, maybe.
0: <laughs> like what? Like I don't want to be there until it's safe for everybody to be there. I don't really want to be there, but if I'm gonna be there, I would like it to be safe.
1: Absolutely. Um, so. <laughs> not a sterile hospital setting and I think that's the same thing for kids especially for the little ones like at my school right now they're standing on blue dots to social distance and their desks are in rows and there's all this protective gear and I feel like I'm working in like a hospital and a medical unit it's just it's so sterile and especially when all of the students are students of color it's even more problematic because it's like let's put you into like it's we're going to be overt about compliance now. We're going to be overt about how we're going to control your behavior. And it's, and I'm not sure why so many people are rushing to put kids into that, into that situation. I
0: think, I think it's, 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 they now have a justification for, for what they always wanted to do. Yeah. You know, I think they're now happy that they, no one can tell them that it's not a good idea to control kids.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because you have to control, like especially if they're younger, like, you, you know, people are gonna get, get, do things that would be unsafe with the COVID stuff. And it's just like, so you have to tell them. And so they're getting their jollies, you know, from from now, no one can stop me from telling them that it's a bad idea to do these things. So it's very, yeah, I think it's, it's um, I don't know, because I see people online, And I see them complaining about their students still. And they're, you know, talking about how, how, you know, like, I don't know. I don't, sometimes I don't even know where my, where my empathy lies, because like, as a general thing, because although I'm not a K-12 teacher, I'm an educator, like I empathize with teachers overall. And I'm a parent just like you and I empathize with parents. It's it's not easy to do all of this at home and yeah. so forth. But sometimes they're both wrong. Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. I'm, just, I'm just like the parents, like it's learning loss and so, and I'm just like, what? Stop. And then the teachers are like, Oh, these students, they just give me so much trouble and they won't do what okay. I say. I'm just like, they're independent, you know, I'm just yeah. like I can't I mean really the common denominator is who is being pushed down like what really is happening is that the teachers and the parents do not actually care about the kids of color that's really what's happening
1: that's no it is and it's becoming more and more obvious and like and I feel the same way as you it's a weird line when you're both in education and as a teacher, as a parent, like I empathize with both groups to an extent, but once you start to essentially push kids of color out of the way and prioritize your own needs over theirs, now I'm like, I, I have no empathy for you at that point. Like you don't, you don't belong in the classroom and your opinions don't belong <laughs> in education. Like that's it.
0: I was leading a, a panel last week at Hunter, and um which is where I go to school. And I was originally supposed to be a panelist. It's, it was all students, panelists. And um, and then there was like a you know, Zoom breakout rooms, right, to talk about what we talked about in the panel. And then the moderator got sick. Well, not sick, sick. He had the vaccine and he just was like under the weather. So it's like, oh, well, that's like the best possible reason to feel <laughs> ill, right? You got the vaccine, right? Um, so then I was the moderator. And a panelist, which means I talked a lot. Uh, and one of the things, but mostly I don't want to dominate. So I would ask the, the prescribed questions and I would jump in every so often, but I would usually like quip in something. And what I said, and I'm sort of, you know, turn, turning the, uh, the, you know, putting a pin in our conversation for tonight is that what I said a lot of the time is that sometimes the most anti-racist action is retirement because, <laughs> because sometimes you just gotta get out of the way. You just get out of the way. You know, it's just like, what can I do? Because I have a classmate who, oh, she's not listening to this, um, <laughs> me talking shit on my podcast, but that's what I do in every episode. Uh, it, it is, uh, she works in an area that's more conservative, right? And, you know, we, we were, were talking in the class, which is about like justice and so forth. It's the last class I have to take. Uh, you know, how to deal with people in the community who are not into doing all this stuff. And it's like, well, they're not going to listen, you know, they're not going to listen because they're, uh, you know, you know they, they're not into all of these things. And it's like, well, you have to make them listen or you just need to leave. <laughs> it's like, you can't just like, well, well, they're just not going to do it. It's like, all right, well, then, then you're not trying very well. Um, you know, how, how do I Get people to go along with my anti-racist efforts. It's like you find the power and you win. That's it. You can't. You know, there's no. I don't really think you can convince people to do anti-racist stuff. They don't want. They don't want to do it. They're not going to do it. The only you, you, you need to overpower them, basically.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the. And that I think is what people need to understand. It's going to. It. It's going to like no one's willingly giving away their power we are going to have to, to take it in that sense. And that has to happen in so many ways in education, whether it's canceling tests or changing the curriculum or the content that we're teaching, that's what's, that has to happen. And I think that I'll just say lastly, when it comes to teacher retention, I want to retain, figure out ways to retain more teachers of color, more white teachers who are actually committed to anti-racist work, but we don't necessarily need to retain everybody. And then sometimes when I hear about teachers leaving the profession in like disproportionate numbers, I'm like, well, some of them I don't want to leave, but some of them (laughs) I won't be missed.
0: Yeah, they don't all need to stay. Some of them are just like you know, you just just you could just go. Um, it's the same thing like the people who left New York. It's like you just go ahead. You, know? just, you were you you were only using this career as a stepping stone to when you wanted to be a realtor in Westchester, and then when you're selling homes, you can talk about when you were a teacher in the city, um, and now you're selling homes in like Terrytown or something, and you're just like. Yeah, well, you know, back when I was a teacher, so I think a lot about schools and my daughter is this and this and this. Um, I'm not talking about anybody in particular, but you know, uh, <laughs> and now you can, you know, tell people, tell people with stories about when you were a teacher and it's a way that people will trust you when you're selling homes to people who are moving to the suburbs. Really? Um, because that's, you know,
1: honor.
0: Yeah. I'm just like, well, you know, I used to be a teacher. So, you know,
1: um, and better yet, if you were a teacher in the quote unquote inner city.
0: Oh yeah. The inner city. With, was,
1: the, with the at-risk youth. Yeah. I was an inner city teacher, you know. You really know what you're talking about then when you're selling that house. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly.
0: It's like, wow, wow. It's like, yeah. And when I was, uh, you know, before I moved to Fairfield, I'm just picking suburbs. Um, you know, I was just, uh. You know, I just worked in a really low income area and, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, life there. Anyway, i uh, just throwing shade at people, but um, <laughs> the, the uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a shame because um, the conversation, they're not listening to us. Uh, and I think we can amass the power to do it, but we have to see it as a game of power. mm mm-hmm. Um, we're not gonna be able to gently control this out of people.
1: No, no.
0: Um, and we have to understand that they're just, they're gonna, like what they're doing now is fighting back. And um, I think sometimes we think that their hand wringing is not, violent like it's just uncomfortable and it is uncomfortable for them but like like the 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 pushback, even if it's whiny which it mostly is like this is a form of violence what they do when they do this stuff not even not even just in the fact that it leads to higher rates of COVID and I don't even just mean that I mean literally just the the way that they're trying to shut down the, the shift in power is 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 no different from from any kind of violence. It's no different from redlining. It's no different from any of these things that ultimately reinforce the system that, that exists because the system is violent. So, you know, when people get in their feelings about this and you know, I mentioned whiteness and people go in their shell like a turtle. And you know, like that 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 is the 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 violence there. It's not the stuff before the violence. That is the violence. And I think that more people, whether they're teachers, parents, or both, uh, need to understand that when the conversation is framed around uh, bringing things back to the status quo, that they are necessarily telling the people who are harmed by the status quo that they deserve to be harmed, just so that the people that they care more about can go back to what they want. And that is a deeply harmful message that is being propagated constantly.
1: Absolutely, and that is, and I think that is how whiteness operates so successfully because they're able to veil a lot of it in politeness and in supposed, you know, feigns kind of offendedness or fragility or whininess, and what we don't really see is that that message is extremely harmful. And then the policies that are going to now be enacted because of those messages um, are going to be just as harmful as well.
0: Yeah, can't really say better than that. <laughs> All right, Selena, so thanks for talking to me. I think we really got some, some good points in here. Um, it'll be a little bit before the episode actually comes out because so I have one more before it but um, I had a good time having the conversation and hopefully people pay attention, um, even if the, you know, and I would say maybe not the realtors, but you know what, if (laughs) if your destiny is to go sell houses in Westchester, go now. Please. Don't wait. We don't need you in the classroom (laughs) if that's what you're going to do with your life. Go sell your houses.
1: Don't feel bad don't feel any guilt whatsoever we'll be okay without you (laughs) absolutely